Philippians chapter 3. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who served God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, as I have often told you before and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Well, good morning, everyone. Shall we pray? Father, whatever is said in this message today, may it glorify your name. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, chapter 3. Philippi was a major city of the Macedonians and it played a significant part in the life of the Apostle Paul. He had a wonderful and lasting ministry in the assembly there, which he founded during his second missionary journey in 48 AD. As one writer said, from Macedonia three centuries earlier, 
Alexander the Great went out to conquer the Eastern world. He failed and he died in the process. Over 300 years later, also from Macedonia, the power of the gospel of Christ went out to conquer the Western world of Paul's day. Philippi was an important Roman colony in the northern part of Greece. It was renowned for its gold mines. The city was renamed Philippi by King Philip II of Macedon in 356 BC. A little bit of history there. Philip was the father of Alexander the Great. When Paul wrote this letter to the church in 61 AD, 12 years after founding the assembly, which was the first one in Europe, a significant number of Christians were already worshipping there. Approximately five years after this letter was written from a Roman prison, Paul was judged guilty of crimes against Emperor Nero and he was condemned to death. In approximately 66 AD, he was taken to the execution block and beheaded, just four years before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, the epistle to the Philippians is recognised as Paul's most upbeat letter. It radiates joy in the Lord and tremendous love for the Philippian church, who were old friends and very enthusiastic supporters of the apostles' evangelistic ministry. They had always been extremely generous in helping Paul with the basic necessities for day-to-day -day living, for which he was always greatly appreciative. I believe the epistle served as a thank you note to the brethren for their love, support, and partnership in the gospel. Paul also wanted them to know that not even though he was in prison, being harshly treated, and in appalling conditions, or under house arrest in Rome, he was not in the least bit discouraged. He wanted to assure them that he was full of joy because of what Christ had done for him personally and for the Christians at Philippi. In this chapter, he reports how false teachers were promoting their godless and damaging doctrine, and he encourages the brethren to stand firm in the difficult circumstances they were facing. And in his opening remarks in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And he also says it was no trouble for him to write the same things over and over again about the gospel of the risen Christ. He knew how important this was for salvation. He believed repetition was also a safeguard for the church at Philippi. Now, in the 21st century, repetition is more popular than ever, thanks to the advancement of marketing in the media. I'm sure you would all agree that the use of repetition in our own lives to reinforce an instruction or to offer a point of view can be extremely productive. Today, in the highly professional sporting world, Generally, in order to get the message through to the players of all sports, coaches almost certainly use repetition. In this study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, we have seen the apostle move back and forth between use of his own situation and various points of instruction that the assembly urgently needed to hear. 
It is as if the apostle is saying, brethren, here are some further and final matters that we need to discuss. These matters are summed up in the phrase, rejoice in the Lord. And what follows in the rest of Paul's letter to the, uh, the Philippines uh, are some of the ways that believers can express their joy in Christ. Paul's message and prayer for all of the believers in Philippi is echoed in the words written in his earliest surviving letter to the Galatians in chapter 2 and verses 20 and 21, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Since his great conversion on the road to Damascus, all Paul wanted to do was proclaim Christ crucified and resurrected and to preach that God's grace, the free gift of the Almighty, is sufficient for all. When we read in Acts 16 about the ill treatment that Paul and Silas received in Philippi, where the order from the authorities was for them to be stripped, beaten, severely flogged and jailed, together with Paul's imprisonment in Rome when he wrote this epistle, it's very obvious that the preaching of the gospel of Christ in the first century AD was an extremely dangerous and most difficult task. The early Christian evangelists faced enormous, monumental opposition. Yet many people came to the Lord by the simplistic preaching of the gospel, the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's important to note too that during this time in history, it was illegal to be a Christian up until 300 AD, when Constantine became the first Christian emperor in Rome. The early church had, uh, Christians had no church building such as we have today and they were regarded as scum by the Jewish and Roman authorities. Many were persecuted and murdered in the same way that Hitler's Third Reich treated the Jews during World War II. It's recorded that Emperor Nero actually ordered Christians to be set on fire so that the grounds of his palace could be lit up at night. And they were also blamed by Nero for the great fire of Rome, which he is believed to have started. Many Christian leaders during the first century were imprisoned and they were executed. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem, was beheaded. And many of the apostles and followers of Christ were later martyred. So let's look at point one. No confidence in the flesh. Suddenly the tone of Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 3 and verse 2 changes quite dramatically. Paul alerts the church that there were a number of Christian Jews known as Judaizers who were challenging certain aspects of his fundamental teaching about the cross of Calvary, Christ's physical resurrection and the concept of grace. Paul always based his teaching on salvation being the free gift of God. 
In writing to the church at Ephesus, he says in chapter 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast, so that no one can brag. He taught that we can never earn our salvation. It was only through God's grace that we are saved. And we can only humbly and thankfully accept what God has done for each one of us. Paul's teaching never restricted salvation to anyone who believed, whether that was Jew or Gentile. No one, but no one was excluded. These Christian Jews, Judaizers living in Philippi, were sticklers for observing Judaistic law. And they believed that if a man was to be saved, he must earn credit in the sight of God by countless deeds of the law and that salvation belongs to the Jews and no one else. They taught that before God could have any use for any man, they must be circumcised and become a Jew. The doctrine of the Judaizers was a mixture of grace through Christ and works through the keeping of the law. This false doctrine was dealt with in Acts 15 and strongly condemned by Paul when he wrote to the Galatian church. At the Jerusalem council, where some of the Pharisees insisted that the Gentiles could not be saved unless they were circumcised and obeyed the law of Moses, the apostle Peter, when addressing the assembly there, said that the apostles together believed it was just through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that all Christians were saved. Paul also made the case that in Christ there was no longer any distinction between Jew and Gentile. There are many groups today in the 21st century who have beliefs and practices very similar to the Judaizers of the first century. There are believers who still accept the theological position that the Old Testament law is equally binding on Gentiles and Jews alike. Most opponents of this teaching say that God is glorified when we accept one another in love and come together in unity as one in Christ. There are still many Christians, however, throughout the world who hold the view that certain sacraments are necessary for salvation. And they also teach that their doctrine is a mixture, a mixture of law and grace explicitly rejecting the idea that salvation is by faith alone. Now, in this epistle, epistle to the church at Philippi, Paul presents a few home truths about these Judaizers. In chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he says, Be on guard. Be on guard against this Jewish party because they're mutilators. That's big stuff, but it's even bigger. Watch out for these dogs, he calls them because they are evil. And Paul then proceeds in verse 3 to tell the people at Philippi that it is the true followers of Christ who are the real circumcision of the heart, those who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Jesus and place no confidence in the flesh. And Paul emphatically tells the church that if anyone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh... 
He has more, and we read that in verses 4 to 6. The apostle said, look, I've followed all of the rules of Judaism. I'm a dedicated follower of the Jewish law. I can be as confident in the flesh as any of you. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for legalistic righteousness, I am absolutely faultless. In Acts 9, it records Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus and how he had previously breathed murderous threats against the disciples of Christ. He was also present at the stoning of Stephen and would have heard Stephen's final prayer prior to dying. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It was also the Apostle Paul who gave his approval to Stephen's death. This death of Stephen was clearly etched in the mind and the heart of Paul forever and ever. In his letter to the Philippians, chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, Paul says that all of his former life as a Pharisee, where he was in a position of authority and significant power, that was a total loss compared to the greatness of knowing Jesus as Lord. All his notoriety as a Pharisee, the responsibility for organising the rounding up of Christians and having them murdered, knowing all of the power brokers, the bigwigs in Jerusalem involved in Jewish leadership. Paul writes that he may have lost all of this worldly prestige, which seemed very big deal and important at the time, but he now considers that to be absolute rubbish, garbage, in fact, the Greek word means sewerage. From being the hunted, the hunted of Christians, he now sees himself as being the hunted. And this is clearly evident that wherever Paul went, he faced imminent danger and came under close scrutiny when proclaiming the power and the greatness of the risen Christ. Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus is regarded by scholars as the greatest human event in history. And he counted this event where he became and went from hunter to hunted as the most important thing that ever happened to him. The apostle then proceeds to tell the church that righteousness does not come from the law. It comes from God and only through faith in the risen Christ. All he wanted to do for the rest of his life was to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. When I read that Paul called these Judaizers dogs, I thought, wow, that's pretty strong language from the apostle. For us in Australia, I'm sure you would agree the dog is a much-loved pet. We all love our dogs and we spoil them, or I hope we do. I had two Pekingese dogs, Marion and I did, arguably the best dogs the world has ever seen. I must admit that I am rather biased. A photograph of my boy dog is still on my screensaver, in his crow's jacket, of course. He's been gone now for nine years, but his memory is impossible for me to shake off. However, Paul called these Judaizers dogs because during the time of Jesus, dogs were predominantly prior animals, roaming the streets, 
sometimes hating amidst the garbage dumps, hunting there and snapping and snarling at whoever they met. They wandered about in eastern cities without a home and without an owner, fighting amongst themselves and attacking people that walked by, especially anything worn that resembled a Collingwood T-shirt. In the Bible, the dog is seen always as the lowest of all animals. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, recorded in Luke 16, verse 21, part of the torture of Lazarus is that street dogs annoyed him, poor old Lazarus, by licking his sores. In Revelation 22:15, the apostle John records that the word dog stands for those people who are so impure that they are barred from the holy city. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6, it says that which is holy must not be given to dogs, ever. The word dog is also the name Jews called Gentiles. Sometimes during AFL football matches, the umpire and players, sadly, are often referred to in exactly the same way. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul called these people dogs evil workers and perpetrators of evil things. It was the view of these Judaizers that a man had to keep the Jewish laws, countless rules and regulations in order to work righteousness. However, Paul clearly did not agree with that. He was adamant that the only kind of righteousness there is comes from giving everything, absolutely everything to God. Paul called these men the party of mutilation and he writes to the brethren at Philippi stating that if these Judaizers have nothing to show but circumcision of the flesh, well, they're not really circumcised. He goes on to say real circumcision is devotion of heart, mind and life to God. Therefore, Paul said it was only the Christians who were truly circumcised, not without with any uh, outward mark of the flesh, but with that inner circumcision, which the great lawgivers, teachers and prophets taught centuries and centuries before. Paul reminded the people that Christian worship is not a thing of ritual regarding the law. If you are bound by the law, it's perfectly possible for a person to observe the outward observances of the religion as the Pharisees and the Sadducees did, yet have hatred and bitterness and pride in their hearts. But real circumcision comes from worship, loving God and helping others. He reminds the people at the Philippi church that their only boast is in Jesus, not the law. Point two, pressing on toward the goal. As we read on in this chapter, it's clearly evident that Paul's life in the resurrected Christ after his conversion was grace-driven, which is the central truth, I believe, behind the whole letter to the Philippian church that he wrote. The humility of Paul is made very clear in verses 12 and 13 when he said that he wanted to push on and to know more and more about Christ, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Paul said that he intended to press on toward the goal and to win the prize for which God had called him. In his writings, Paul often used sporting terminology when it came to patience 
and perseverance in completing in, a, in the race and to take the prize that was before him. Here, I believe, uh, he's referring to a long-distance race, akin perhaps to a marathon. This is a race that involves a lot of discipline, perseverance and commitment. The length of the race is 42.2 kilometres, originating in ancient Greece. And this is a mighty long way. In tackling this race back in 1985, I personally found the 0.2 kilometres quite manageable. It was the 42 kilometres that was monstrously hard. Paul says in verse 12 that he has to press on and take hold of that for which Christ took hold of him. And in verse 14, he says that he wants to push on toward the goal and win the prize for which God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, there are two wonderful 20th century examples of pressing on toward the goal and winning the prize. The first includes the words of the slain civil rights leader, Dr. Martin Luther King, used at his own funeral. And he said, I want to say that I tried to love and serve humanity, yes. If you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. That I was a drum major for righteousness. And all the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. And the second example is about an absolute hero of mine, the legendary Scottish athlete that you know well, I'm sure, called Eric Little, who in the 1924 Olympics in Paris refused to run in the heats of the 100 and the 200 metres because they were scheduled to be run on the Lord's Day on a Sunday. Many of you will know, after watching the film Chariots of Fire, how Eric was offered a chance to run in the 400 metres, an event that he wasn't totally familiar with. But not only did he win, he smashed the Olympic and world record, and it stayed for many, many Olympics. Just prior to the race, Little was handed a piece of paper and written on it were the words from 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30. Them that honour me, I will honour. Little spent the rest of his life after the Olympic Games as a missionary in China and died out there of an inoperable brain tumour. He was 46. His nurse recalls in his biography, Pure Gold, that as he was dying in her arms, he uttered just two words. Surrender, surrender. Over hundreds and hundreds of years, so many wonderful people have been martyred for their faith, refusing to denounce the risen Christ who at Calvary died for the sins of the world, your sins and my sins. These saints ran their race often working very much against the odds. One such martyr who sacrificed her life in 1969 for Jesus also joined the other prize winners of faith in glory. She was a young 17-year-old dedicated Christian girl in a communist labour camp in China. And she was bound hand and foot and made to kneel in the centre of a circle of people who were commanded to stone her or be shot. Several Christians refused and they were immediately murdered. The girl died under a hail of stones with her face shining with the love of Jesus. We don't even know the name of this girl, 
It was never recorded, but God does. Later, one of those who threw the stones broke down and received Christ as saviour. The invitation from Paul in Philippians 3 was for the people of the church to follow his example, to not lose heart and stand firm. The apostles' prayer was that they would be established in love, have power and grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God. It is the same directive for each one of us today. 2,000 years later, the gospel message has not changed. It hasn't changed one bit. I believe God wants you and me to follow Paul's example in evangelism and emulate the great commission of Christ recorded in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. For our world personally, yes, it may well be localised and just include the Fleurieu Peninsula. It may involve our immediate family only, a son, a daughter, grandchildren, or the neighbour at the other end of the street. Our work in evangelism is never governed by time or age. I believe that God wants us to be opportunists, willing and able to talk to people about God's grace and what he has done for each one of us through the power of his Holy Spirit, just as Paul taught us so long ago. Point three, enemies of the cross. In chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, it re it's recorded that Paul brought some rather disturbing news to the church at Philippi. And he says, For I have often told you that before, and say again now, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Now, most scholars believe that this passage is referring to the antinomians or Gnostic equivalents and were of the opinion that this false doctrine was unlikely to have had any significant impact on the church congregation at Philippi because Paul has confidence in the assembly. He says in chapter 1, verse 7, For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Now, the antinomians were enemies of the cross and their teaching was a very serious matter which deeply concerned the Apostle Paul. Their mindset was, on earth, was earthbound and they shamed the gospel of Christ. They were heretics who tried to intellectualise Christianity and make a kind of philosophy out of it. They were masquerading as Christians and their behaviour was scandalous. These men began with the principle that from the beginning of time there had always been spirit and matter. Spirit, they said, is good, and matter is evil. These heretics taught that if matter is essentially evil, the body is also evil and will remain so no matter what you do with it. These people taught that gluttony, sexual sin and drunkenness were of no importance because they only affect the body which is of no significance anyway. This, of course, is obscenely false doctrine which Paul condemned. Now, the antinomian sect still was in existence 1,500 years later during the 16th century Reformation and was condemned by the Protestant German reformer Martin Luther. 
antinomians distorted the principle of Christian liberty and the doctrine of grace. They endeavoured to teach that in their concept of Christianity, people had the freedom to do what they liked. So these evil men turned Christian liberty into unchristian license and gave in to their passions. Their warped minds believed that since grace was wide enough to cover every sin, you could sin as much as you liked and not worry because it would make no difference to an all-forgiving, loving God. God wants us to live a life of morality, integrity and love. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus freed us from the legalistic commands of the Old Testament law. My final point, very quickly, citizens in heaven. Paul concludes uh, Philippians chapter 3 with the hope for all Christians, and it's a message for each one of us today. For all people who love the Lord, our permanent ticket to citizenship is being in heaven with the risen Christ. This promise is to all Jews and Gentiles who believe Christ is the son of the living God, that he went to the cross of Calvary for the sins of the world and that he physically rose from the dead, ascended into heaven and that he'll come again at the end of time, the second coming of Christ. And I've asked for the last two verses to be put on the overhead, but if they're not, but our citizenship is in heaven, it says, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that we can become citizens of heaven through the death and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus, our Saviour. As your word says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We pray, Father, that you will bless and protect each person here today, together with their families, wherever they may be. Help us to reach out to others with love and compassion and not be afraid to proclaim the truth of your gospel. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.